Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show Podcast. I'm your Saturday host, Sterling Fox, and today Dan McTague from Canadians for Affordable Energy looks at our rising gas prices and predicts we're not over this yet. Expect them to rise even more. Dr. Lauren Edelman from Canada West Veterinary Specialist Hospital has some practical advice for pet owners dealing with some pretty cold conditions. And Dr. Jim Russell from St. Paul's Hospital will tell us about a $3.5 million grant for research on some diabetes and hypertension drugs, which may have positive implications in the fight against COVID. So let's get started. Joined on the line by the president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, Dan McTague is back with us on CKNW Weekend Mornings. Dan, good morning to you. And it is a good morning, especially since the temperature is coming up, Sterling. Indeed it is. It's, it's been kind of a well, shockingly cold around here. Not very cold for the rest of the country, but for us softies here in Metro Vancouver, Dan, it's been, it's been a little tense lately. So this morning, I don't know whether to congratulate you or throw an old vegetable at you, because here you were just a couple of days ago with Jazz predicting gas is going to reach a buck seventy-seven a liter by Friday. And here I am driving in this morning, the gas station of reference, uh, Rupert and First Avenue at Petro Canada, 176.9. So there's your prediction, bang on the money. Do I congratulate you for that? Uh, I don't think so, especially when you're talking about a buck 85 gas soon. So no. take it for what it is. No old vegetables. <laughs> I can't do that on the radio. Well, you'd be, uh, there'd be a lineup for sure. And if I had a dollar for every one, I'd be a millionaire. Um, no, I'm really the voice of doom when it comes to these things. But Mostly to highlight why these things happen, but mm-hmm. also to give people a bit of a you know a heads up as far as where prices are going. I know it doesn't uh, for many people. There's sort of the shrug, big deal, five cents a liter, ten cents a liter, uh, but for a lot of people, it does matter, and uh, that's the constituency. Those are the folks that I'm really worried about. Mm-hmm. It's not just uh, you know the cost of gasoline; it's the cost of diesel; it's the cost as it makes its way through the economy in terms of uh, higher prices for everything, inflation, including food. Indeed. So now you you tweeted your at gas price wizard on Twitter and you just talked about this uh, oil just broke uh, 80 bucks a barrel for West uh, Texas uh, Intermediate uh, and it'll break an all time record. Uh, You predicted the buck 77 a liter and you added to the tweet after a couple of other figures. My prediction of 22 fuel prices rising 20 percent between February and May to hit food prices, too. And then you add on. Great time for the Trudeau Liberals to tack on six to seven cents in carbon taxes. When is that happening? April first. Well, in BC, it's the provincial government that adds the uh, the tax, and that is going to happen in April, from my understanding. April fifteenth, federally, okay. in the provinces that don't have a carbon tax or didn't have a carbon tax, so it would be Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, New Brunswick, and my province of Ontario. Uh, they will see a two and a half cent increase uh, with HST uh, come uh, April first, April Fool's Day. Of mm-hmm. all the days, they would share the bureaucrats would choose to do that, uh, and of course, that's really only the, uh, uh, the if you will, that's the uh, the appetizer. The the reality is that uh, starting uh, for the rest of the country, on I say the rest of the country, importantly on uh, December the first, the clean fuel standard kicks in, and it's important to understand why you know you're you're always 10 uh, you're always 15 to 20 cents a liter higher than most other provinces is because bc currently has a clean fuel standard and that clean fuel standard at about 486 dollars uh for a cre- carbon credit works out to an additional 
16, 17 cents a litre. So that's what's coming to the rest of Canada. And the timing couldn't be worse only because there just isn't enough sterling. There isn't enough oil production globally. And it's not likely to happen. There's a whole variety of reasons for that. Uh, but we're looking at a shortage in oil supplies. And because it's critical to the entire global economy, uh, without it, we're looking at some pretty substantial increases. And I said, yes, 20%. Look for a buck eighty-five at some points here in BC throughout twenty twenty-two. Yeah, and, certainly and Vancouver. I suppose, Dan, the the most uh, disquieting part of all of that is the fact that uh, we now know. When you and I last had a conversation, and it's always good to have you on the show, by the way. When we had last had a conversation, we were at a a serious supply shortage issue. The Trans Mountain pipeline was down. We were barging in oil uh, from the Washington State suppliers. But now, you see, we we know the Trans Mountain is back up and supply the local refineries so it's not a supply issue or is it still well look uh the trans mountain pipeline is back up and running but not at full capacity okay right now it's about 80 percent. these things take a long time by the way similar thing happened in the united states with the colonial pipeline the cyber attack last may it took several months for it to get back to uh, complete flow and there's a you know there's an orderly way in which they do this but here's the the bottom line for the price increase that we've seen here Yes, oil had a little bit to do with it, uh, but it was the, you know, I could say 15 of the 18 cent a liter jump that we've seen just in the past few weeks since Christmas has to do with the Parkland refinery being down for several days. Right, yeah. Literally shut down on the cold, the Holly Frontier, the old Shell refinery in Puget Sound uh, in Anacortes, and two uh, terminals, distribution terminals in Oregon that also uh, had some problems with uh, with uh, with transportation. So all those combined is why we saw this massive uh, run up to what is now unprecedented prices in gasoline. By the way, they dropped two cents a liter tomorrow for what it's worth. Uh, the dollar seventy five nine you're seeing at most stations here this morning will be a dollar seventy three point nine, and I expect that by you know next weekend we'll be back uh, well below the buck sixty seven buck sixty six range. Well, I suppose it's that bizarre kind of fluctuation week to week, Dan, when it can be, you know, a nickel to a dime per liter, more or less, literally one week to the next. And there's no element of predictability to any of this either, is there? Except what I'm giving, no. Um, but it does, you know, it does suggest this is a very volatile commodity. Sure does. It always has been. Uh, but it, it, it does speak to the fact that, like it or not, it's uh, it's very much a part of our lives. And mm-hmm. it, it doesn't matter how or where we're we're using or what we're using. Everyone thinks of it just in terms of fuel. I think uh, we have to look at the ubiquitous use of, uh, of, of hydrocarbons like uh, natural gas and oil and put those in perspective. And of course, uh, with so much happening with Omicron and the various waves and uh, the demand shooting through the roof and yet to be, you know, we are, have not yet sterling seen the end of the demand story at a time in which supply is dwindling. Mm. We're seeing demand surging. And uh, I do fear for when Omicron finally packs up and leaves us and we don't have any further waves, the world is going to be uh, uh, playing a lot of uh, catch up with, uh, with, with supply and, and is going to need a lot more of that fuel, not less. Certainly the immediate beneficiary of this right now is the government of Alberta, whose uh, deficit is suddenly being, well, reduced, not eliminated by any stretch. We're all hopelessly in debt because of, of COVID, but their COVID expenses will be very much offset to a much higher degree than they expected simply by increased oil and gas revenues. Very, very fortunate today to be joined on the line from the uh, Toronto area by Dan McTague from Canadians for Affordable Energy. 
energy. And Dan, uh, before we took the break, uh, we talked about uh, the fact that, of course, here in Metro Vancouver, prices are in the 177 range this morning, 176.9. Uh, the the reference station that I use every Saturday when I come to work. So you're 0.1 of a cent off of your prediction. So now you're talking about North America could be in for a gasoline price shock by summer. Is this, again, specifically supply-related, Dan, or is there another factor we haven't even considered yet? Well, it is uh, very much due to uh, supply constraints. Uh, and it, uh, if you look globally right now, uh, the world is short 2.3 million barrels of oil. And that's not uh, in of itself, uh, if that weren't enough uh, to cause uh, heads to turn, uh, it is also that uh, demand hasn't quite come back to where it was pre-COVID, which means that that gulf, that that, uh, uh, that disparity between supply and demand could grow. And the only way in which you can get that back into balance is by seeing oil move from where it is now, $78, $79 a barrel, hit 80 uh, the day before yesterday, right, yeah. up to $100 a barrel. And with that, uh, we could expect that, uh, you know, we could see prices then move much higher, uh, bringing with it uh, uh, not just oil, but uh, of course, gasoline, diesel and other prices. So get ready for a very expensive year ahead. And it doesn't really matter what we do locally. This is a global phenomenon. Mm. And uh, it's driven by a lack of uh, capital to uh, produce more energy, whether it's Brazil, whether it's United States. Uh, And yes, governments uh, that have oil are making good money. Uh, but it's not enough to meet uh, this demand, and it's uh, kind of a bittersweet uh, outcome, especially here in British Columbia. We produce a lot of natural gas, so you know it's going to be good for the government as well, but uh, at what cost? Yeah, exactly. So, Dan, in terms of supply, we know, for example, that uh, in, in oil countries like Saudi Arabia, for example, right now, they're not cranking out every available possible drop of oil on a daily basis. In fact, they're capping their production quite deliberately in order to kind of keep demand or supply at, at, at a certain level. And I guess that helps to control prices. But a lot of people will go and, and ask, I think, a pretty obvious question. Why don't countries who have more supplies and more available uh, petroleum products simply make more available? Uh, good question. Saudi Arabia, by the way, it's estimated can't go above 11 million barrels a day without uh, creating problems for their wells. And the deplete rate, depletion rate could create problems for them down the road. Ah, okay. And although OPEC is saying that they are you know, increasing by 400,000 barrels a day every month, uh, places like Libya, Nigeria are all having difficulty meeting that number. So it's likely that we are still seeing, uh, you know, uh, fumbling on behalf of the uh, of OPEC. At this time of year, by the way, Russia doesn't have a whole lot of spare capacity. Uh, if it isn't playing geopolitics, it's uh, producing enough just to meet its own commitments and its own domestic need. As for North America, the number is very simple. Pre-pandemic, the United States was producing, remember, number one producer in the world pre-pandemic. Uh, was producing 13.1 million barrels a day of oil. Today, 11.7. So there's a major gap just south of the border. And unfortunately, we can't help the Americans. Uh, They are too busy blocking pipelines, uh, which brings into focus... Uh, Biden's uh, short-sightedness in killing the Keystone XL. It certainly does. Now, are they, is again, is the fact that there is this gap between what is needed and what is produced on a daily basis, Dan, is that adjustable from the producer's point of view? Or are they just, are we just stuck being a down uh, on a daily basis? 
Well, we need extra capacity infrastructure. Uh, Mexico can't produce more oil. Venezuela can't produce more oil. Mexico announced last week it's not set, it's not exporting any oil because it can't. But if I'm an American shale producer, the guys who were rock and rolling over the past 10 years and brought the Americans up from 5 million barrels to 13 million barrels of production, well, about 20% of them can't find financing. There has been a movement among what I refer to as woke capitalists that have been very successful in getting uh, companies to stop, banks to stop lending, oh. capital going towards fossil fuels. So what happens if you don't have the alternative that's ready to pack, you know, to, to back it up? You wind up with what they're doing in Europe today, where natural gas prices are, what, four times the rate, uh, hydro rates eight times. Uh, it's a real crisis, and much of it is... Uh, having uh, been a little too short-sighted and moving ahead too quickly on this so-called great transition. Phil took a really interesting phone call during the news, Dan. The the caller didn't want to go on the air, but wanted to suggest that we were being essentially conditioned. Remember when back in the day, we actually actually were brought along as a group to wrap our sorry little brains around a dollar a liter? Well, here we are. Here we are now with about buck 77 this morning. You're talking a buck 85 in a couple more months. Are we being set up for $2 a liter gas? Well, I think we are, but I'm not doing the setting up. I'm simply explaining to people that uh, you voted for this kind of punishment. You've got organizations uh, committed to receiving substantial amounts of funding uh, from the federal government, from other governments to go about saying we have to shut down our natural gas and fossil fuel industry. By the way, I don't know how well we would have done in the past few weeks in the cold uh, without natural gas, but I'll leave that to, to, to the others. No, it's not a question of conditioning. There are a significant number of municipal, federal, and provincial politicians, uh, certainly here in BC, but across the country, who want prices to be so high that you seek the alternatives. The problem is that they don't exist. Right. And if they were to exist, we would have adopted those a lot earlier. We're looking at gift horse in the mouth, early, and I think that's the problem, is that uh, the public is way awakening to the idea that energy affordability, affordability generally, is something that we cannot take for granted in a country that is blessed with an abundance of energy and among the most harshest and coldest in the world. So for that reason, if anybody's thinking that we should be conditioning people to this, I think those that are trying to do the conditioning may very well find themselves lined up on the 30-yard line and punted right through the end zone at the next election. Interesting stuff, and a great football analogy, too. Uh, Final question to you, and we're always happy to have you with us. Now, in terms of production, you were talking about the American model. You talked about Saudi Arabia, and you've talked about governments around the world, including our own, going out of their way to suppress further development and production in the petroleum sector. Is Alberta, for example, example, this morning or this weekend, Dan, capable of upping their output? Alberta can produce 4 million barrels a day, can up that within a couple of years to several million barrels a day if it had the takeaway capacity. Right now, uh, it's only doing so by rail. We've had a bit of an adjustment with respect to the Line 3N bridge that's uh, increased by about 400,000 barrels a day. That's a good thing. The Trans Mountain Pipeline will allow that. Look, we have the third largest provable reserves in the world, and we have among the most responsible uh, you know, methods used to, for extraction and production and processing. That aside, Canada could easily triple what it's doing right now, address all of this. But uh, unfortunately, there is only one narrative in the world that seems to be prevalent, and that's the one that says, no, you can't do this, Canada can't do this, and for that reason, we are going to suffer uh, an unfortunate fate of having to pay far more than what we ought to at a time in which uh, we, we may very well find ourselves 
not being able to fund the, the kind of environmental programs that so many of us cherish. Right. And, you know, at, at a time when the notion, even for many millions of young Canadians of ever owning a house, for example, is becoming fantasy. So, you know, uh, the, in terms of escalating yeah. prices and pressure on just getting by, this is not helpful, is it? No, no, it isn't. And you know what? The governments, uh, especially the central bank, should have been cautioned about going in and buying mortgage asset-backed mortgages. Uh, this is not a very smart thing to do. Uh, interest rates are going to go up. Hopefully there will be some kind of a correction. Our population continues to increase. That's a good thing. Our immigration increases. That's a good thing. But you also have to do, in my town here in Toronto, where we also have the same problem as Vancouver, you can't stop this idea that you can, uh, you know, that uh, you can hem off the land and uh, basically say you can't build past a certain point. We have a lot of variable land in this country, mm-hmm. but it seems that we have some, the same group that's saying, no, no, you're not building in my backyard. And they're using, unfortunately, and very dishonestly, the environmental uh, card to, uh, to try to play that game. Interesting stuff. Interesting times, too. Dan McTagg, always a pleasure, sir. We do thank you uh, for making yourself available to us. It's an important topic, Dan, and each and every one of us that drives anything that takes petrol is paying great deal of attention this weekend. Thanks for your time. Looking for more. Thanks again. Have a great 2022, Sterling. Shall do, Dan. We'll talk again. There's Dan McTagg from Toronto, Oshawa, actually, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy. Dr. Lauren Edelman is back with us today. Always a pleasure to have the doc on our show. She is a Vancouver veterinarian at, with Canada West Veterinary Specialist Hospital in East Vancouver. Dr. Edelman, Lauren, good morning and welcome back. Good morning. Let's uh, talk a little bit about, and Happy New Year. I know it's it, it's kind of a little latish for that sort of thing, but we haven't talked long enough, so Happy New Year to you. And uh, you uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, what we're dealing with these days, Lauren. We've had a cold snap, to say the very, very least. Uh, lots of very slippery surfaces again this morning, particularly out in the Fraser Valley, where uh, cars are slipping and sliding, to say nothing of people and creatures. So let's talk about the frozen reality that we're dealing with. I know that you put out a, 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 a the, the Canada West Veterinary Hospital, you put out a, a, a statement advising pet owners, particularly dog owners, to keep their creatures away from anything uh, resembling water, rivers, lakes, ponds, those sorts of things, because of what? Just the thickness is still dodgy? Yeah, I think a lot of people think, okay, well, you know, maybe I don't want to go out on there, but my dog's pretty light, they'll be fine. And we just don't really know. So any of these bodies of water or anything that you don't know without solid land, you know, you throw your ball out for your dog to catch it, and next thing you know, they've broken through the ice. And obviously, being a good pet owner, you know, you'll follow them. Yeah. It, you know, that, that can be fatal just you know, for both the dog and for you. So it's just something that you want to avoid. It's, sure. it's interesting because here in Vancouver, we just don't get a lot. Many of us are from other places in Canada where real winter is, uh, you know, it lasts from November until April. Uh, but here it's, you know, very spotty. And I guess just because the water in your dog's bowl on the back deck is frozen solid doesn't necessarily mean that the pond at the end of the street is going to be frozen solid, does it? Exactly. So, you know, I think just the best, the best thing you can do is avoid because you want to keep, you know, your animals safe. And we have a lot of lakes, rivers, you know, especially, you know, in places like North Vancouver and near the mountains. And, you know, it's best to just stay on the trails and avoid anything that could be 
uh, a risk to break through. And another thing we have to worry about, Lauren, because it's going to start warming up here. We got another bit of snow inbound later today. Not much of it here in Vancouver, they say, but on the way up to Squamish and out in the valley, they're going to get more. But after today's snowfall, it's going to start warming up again. So then now we're going to be dealing with the big melt in a matter of days. Hard to believe this morning, I know, but uh, this all things being equal. Uh, so now we're going to start and back to the North Shore reference that you just had, Lauren. Those creeks on the North Shore, particularly as when it starts to melt, they're pretty fast moving anyway, but you get this incredible melt with all of the snow we've got. Uh, that is an extremely dangerous body of water. Yeah, definitely. I know I've, I've uh, you know, hiked with my dogs up in Lynn Valley in the summer, and even at that time, sometimes the water's nearing the trail, and so you definitely need to be careful. You know, we see a lot of unfortunate events regarding bodies of water with dogs and their owners. Indeed we do. I want to just let our listeners know Dr. Lauren Edelman from Canada West Veterinary Specialist Hospital is back with us. And if you have any questions uh, for the doctor this morning regarding the creatures in your life, our lines are wide open for you right now at 604-280-9898. Lauren, I want to talk a little bit about antifreeze because this is something that you deal with every winter and have been since you became a vet. Uh, Talk to us a little bit about, because there are two types of antifreeze, one of which is extremely dangerous to animals and the other which is quite benign. Tell us more, please. Yeah, so antifreeze um, is quite attractive to animals because it has a sweet type of uh, taste. So not only to dogs, but also cats Mm -hmm. too, especially in these cold weather, if they're outside, they kind of like to hide near the engines when cars have turned off. And so antifreeze, if it's ingested, the most common type of antifreeze contains ethylene glycol. And ethylene glycol can cause fatal renal failure in dogs and cats. And generally, you know, by the time signs are noticed by owners, it can be too late. Um, And so it's really, really important to try and avoid any exposure to antifreeze. And if you are using antifreeze products, you want to look for pet safe products. Mm -hmm. And so those are going to be ones that instead of containing ethylene glycol, they contain propylene glycol. Now, obviously, you're not, you don't want your animal to ingest a lot of propylene glycol either, but it doesn't have the same um, effects in terms of causing renal failure uh, in in your pet. So if you're going to be using antifreeze products, look for pet-safe products. Okay, good advice. Now, Dr. Edelman, if someone suspects the dog or the cat has imbibed some of this dangerous brand of antifreeze, should that creature be immediately taken to an animal hospital? Yes, do not wait for clinical signs to develop. Don't take a wait-and-see approach because as soon as those clinical signs develop, it's almost going to be too late. So if you think your pet may have ingested it, you need to get them to the hospital so that they could be started on high rates of fluid and given um, an antidote, essentially, for this before the kidney failure develops. Ah, okay. So it is possible to intercept uh, the danger, but you really have to be very aware and you got to be able to move pretty quickly. Exactly. And I mean, once, you know, once it has hit, there are still options. You know, we have renal hemodialysis at uh, Canada West, which we can do on these patients, but it definitely gets a lot more expensive and the outcome is, you know, definitely not as predictable once clinical signs develop. 
Oh, okay. And I should probably just let our listeners know that Canada West Veterinary Specialists is the largest veterinary referral hospital in British Columbia with a dedicated intensive care unit staffed 24 hours a day. Are you busy all the time and you're, re- you're there 24-7 for a reason, Lauren? Uh, are you surprised sometimes how busy you are in off hours? Uh, never surprised with how busy we are, unfortunately. We are constantly busy. And, you know, with this pandemic, we have had a giant boom in the amount of animal adoptions, particularly dogs. Mm. And as an industry, I'm sure you might have seen on the, you know, on the news and various places, the veterinary industry going into this pandemic was understaffed. And so, you know, right now we're just trying to, you know, keep our heads above water here with uh, with the staffing that we have. And like everyone suffering from people, you know, calling out because of clinical signs and needing them to isolate. And so, yes, we are extremely busy and everyone is working overtime right now. Um, But it's just kind of the climate that we're in right now. We're constantly full, basically. As, as a veterinarian, you're probably not even a tiny bit surprised by the incredible uptick in pet intake over the last two years of the pandemic. As you pointed out, millions of North Americans, certainly hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Canadians, have taken to, well, another furry creature in their lives because it's going to be weird for a year or more. And it turns out to be a lot more than a year. But that need for companionship, the the need to share with somebody, something, a breathing thing, uh, it, it shouldn't surprise you, but uh, uh, is, the, is the degree of, of pet uh, ownership increase surprising to you? I mean, I guess not. I agree with you. You know, it's kind of expected. We're all staying at home. We're, you know, we're wanting that companion. Why not get a pet? This is the time that we can be with them. But I think that, you know, unfortunately, what's happening is as more people go back to work, we're starting to see those shelters filled up, fill back up and, you know, people surrendering these pets that they have gotten during the pandemic. And so, it is a difficult climate right now because I think all of us as veterinarians, when we started seeing the big, what we call the puppy boom, yep. pandemic puppy boom, mm-hmm. we also knew, give it time, it's also going to be a big, you know, shelter boom in a couple of years when people really realize the 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 amount of time and commitment a pet takes. Let's talk a little bit about that, Lauren, because I agree with you. There will be a, a degree of surrendering going on as uh, work from home ceases to be reality going forward. It's not going to be immediate, especially with Omicron. But going forward, uh, more and more of us are going to be expected to return to the workplace, leaving more and more of our pandemic pets behind. But, you know, rather than just turn them in because you're concerned about separation anxiety, is there not a a series of steps that a person can take to sort of deprogram the dog for, or from having you around all the time to, you know, being a, having you away for a few hours a day. Absolutely. I mean, there's definitely things that can be done. And, you know, part of it is the separation anxiety for sure. But part of it, I think, is also just people realizing, you know, okay, this is kind of annoying. I have to go home. I have to feed my pets. So part of it, we can't help. But if dogs are experiencing separation anxiety, I mean, I have my own dog. I got, you know, a nine-month-old puppy before the pandemic began, but it was only about two months before. And he definitely experiences separation anxiety when I leave the house. Um, And, you know, there are things we can do. The first thing is, 
you know, we can try and make leaving a positive experience Mm -hmm. for them, give them things to do. And one of the biggest things you can do is not make a huge deal when you come back. So I think our natural intuition is to come back through the door and say, oh, hi, guys. I miss you so much. But unfortunately, that's, you know, that kind of does the exact opposite of what we want it to do. So one of the big things you should do is probably ignore your pets when you initially come through that door, which is so hard. I'm just going to say that's that's oh, that's near impossible, Doctor Edelman. My goodness, the, one, of, one of the one of the joys of everyone who owns a dog, one of the joys of the day is coming home and there you are, you're home, and the tail is I wagging know. and the whole body is vibrating. He's home, he's home, and you, you and you and you've got to be well then uh, uh, ignore. Don't don't pay any attention. I to know. <laughs> I'm gonna be I'm gonna be ostracized. <laughs> um, but it is important and you know, there's a ton of resources online from veterinary behaviorists on things to do for, you know, separation anxiety in pets. And if it's severe enough, you may actually wanna enlist the help of a behaviorist. You know, there are veterinarians uh, who specialize in behavior. I'm not talking dog trainers. I'm talking veterinarians right, right. who are board certified in behavior that can really help you through these types of situations mm-hmm. instead of just, you know, giving up and surrendering your pet. Sterling Fox with Dr. Lauren Edelman, veterinarian from Canada West Veterinary Specialist Hospital in East Vancouver, back with us on the program. We did open the phone lines, Lauren, and Kim in Coquitlam has a question or two for you. Kim, good morning. Good morning. Happy snow day. (laughs) Um, Two questions. One regarding cats. And is there anything going forth to about licensing cats and and sort of making them sort of more indoor as opposed to free roaming? I know there's uh, something's going on in Chilliwack in regards to that. And I'm wondering if the veterinarians would, as a community, the veterinarians, the community would, um, Take a position on it? What about that, Lauren? Any thoughts on licensing cats? I mean, I think that's a hard one. First of all, I will say that I'm I'm not in the loop on exactly what's going on, um, as you mentioned. So I I don't know anything about that. Um, I think it's hard because as veterinarians, like our position is really just to care for the animals. Mm. And of course, you know, having an outdoor cat is definitely a greater risk um you know chances of going missing being hit by cars etc etc so that is definitely something that is greater risk to that pet and you know the owners understand that or should understand that um but i'm not sure the re the how realistic it is for us to actually take a position on that and or enforce you know everyone must keep their pets indoors i think that's a hard one okay any other questions for the doc this morning kim yeah this is regarding to the other fur child all right just boots on dogs is it advised to we have a we have a toller and we put boots on him when it gets really snowy just the ice balls on his feet and everything and i'm just wondering is it wise to that because we do wash his feet off when he comes home all year round just the allergens and whatever but is it wise to wear boots on dogs in this weather? Fair question, and a good one, too, Kim. Uh, Dr. Edelman? Yeah, I mean, I think the answer in, in simple terms is yes. Boots uh, provide a nice protection not only from, you know, certain things like corrosive salt right. and, you know, de-icing products, but also, you know, just from the cold, as you mentioned, from the ice itself. You know, I think people have a misconception that just because dogs have, 
you know, these fur coats and paw hats that they're all, you know, wolves and meant to be outside. But the reality is that most dog breeds are not and they are susceptible to the elements just like people are. So using, you know, coats and booties is advised. Now, I have a dog that I did attempt to put booties on and he refuses to walk <laughs> right, right, right. despite multiple attempts. So I think depending on the dog, you know, there are other things you can use, mm-hmm. things like, you know, pet paw bombs to try and protect them before you go outside. And, and like you mentioned, washing them as soon as they get in is really important as well. Um, so there's different tools we can have. As is the case with uh, antifreeze, Lauren, you also know that uh, there, with these de-icers and the other uh, stuff we throw on our sidewalks at this time of year, there are pet-friendly products, versions of the same product aren't there exactly so the pet friendly products avoid some of these corrosive elements and so they can be really damaging to dogs paws and we see paw pad injuries from that at the vet hospital you know all the time and so keeping your pets whether it's a booty or you know washing them immediately or using one of these paw bombs there's multiple things you can try and do to help their little paws another question from a caller who didn't want to go on the air but says i have a two-year-old doberman who's been on a raw food diet for about a year now but doesn't seem to be growing at all what should i do so that Um, You know, in terms of diet and nutrition, you know, different veterinarians have different stances and what they would recommend. I would just say it's really important with any, you know, home cooked or raw diet, you know, nothing, something that's not commercially made and balanced according to, you know, the, the guidelines set forth that you have to make sure that it is balanced in terms of the macro and micronutrients. And I think that's where we get into a lot of trouble especially with our giant breed or large breed dogs like Doberman mm-hmm. is when people are, when people are feeding home cooked or raw diets that haven't been nutritionally balanced, that can be a big concern in terms of providing the important ratios of calcium and phosphorus for growth. Ah. So I would, yeah. So I'm not sure what this uh, color is feeding, but I think it's really important to talk to a veterinarian, talk to their veterinarian, and make sure it is an appropriate diet to, to avoid long-term take, issues. Take a list of that uh, food that is included in the diet next time you go to the vet for a checkup with the dog and just compare notes. Is this uh, going to be adequate nutritional balance, Doc? What do you say? That wouldn't hurt at all, would it? No, and there's lots of tools we have for owners who prefer to home cook um, online to, to actually plug in what you're giving, how much, and see, do I need to be giving extra supplements on top of this? Any final thoughts, Lauren? We're almost out of time and always grateful for yours as we head to the news break here at the top of the hour. Final thoughts in terms of, well, here we are. It's a zero-degree morning and snow on the way this afternoon. So limit your you know pet's activity outside. Keep them warm. Understand that they are you know, not uh, impervious to the elements, and uh, just be safe. Dr. Lauren Edelman, always a pleasure, ma'am. We do appreciate your time. Come back and visit again as soon as possible. Great fun. (laughs) Awesome. Thanks for having me. There's Dr. Lauren Edelman from Canada West Veterinary Specialist Hospital in East Vancouver, and thanks for your calls and emails. (laughs) 
This is a great story. A research team based here in Vancouver at St. Paul's Hospital has received new federal funding to continue investigating the effect of an existing class of drug, which is now commonly prescribed for high blood pressure and diabetes, to treat COVID-19. The leader of this team of investigators is Dr. Jim Russell at the Center for Heart-Lung Innovation at our own St. Paul's Hospital. Dr. Russell, good morning, sir, and welcome to the program. Well, good morning, Sterling. Lovely to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Well, it's our pleasure, and congratulations on this uh, this uh, this grant. Uh, it allows the research to continue. What is the drug? What is the name of the drug that could have COVID uh, po- possibilities? Well, it's interesting. I want to thank, uh, as you said, the CIHR, and I also got a, a very, couple of very nice grants from the St. Paul's Hospital Foundation, who you mentioned. So I want to thank them to allow us to do this research. It's actually a class of drugs uh, called ARBS, A-R-B-S. The most common drug that we see used is COSAR or Losartan. That's the drug we're testing. But okay. we're also going to test uh, a number of others that some of your viewers as you said, might already be on for hypertension or for diabetes, uh, myocarditis, uh, Atacand, Diavan, Cozar. There's actually about eight of them. Uh, and that I would say in, the, in our review, 40 to 50% of patients with these other conditions are already on these drugs. Uh, they're pretty inexpensive and very safe. So uh, we became interested in seeing if they could actually decrease mortality, uh, ICU admission, and ventilation, the really bad stuff that happens if you're hospitalized with COVID-19. So this is uh, very much uh, one of those scientific byproduct moments, isn't it? Here's a drug that was designed to produce or to treat or to to, uh, to deal with very specific conditions, diabetes, high blood pressure, and all of a sudden, the chemical combinations contained therein may, underline may, be quite effective in a completely different area. Isn't that That's wonderful? Right. That's right. No, it's very, very interesting. We use the term, sometimes you'll hear this, repurposing. So we're giving them a new purpose, potentially. And what we found in some reviews that we did is that people on these drugs uh, who get admitted to hospital with COVID-19 actually, we showed statistically, have a decreased mortality mortality and um, interestingly especially in males for reasons that we're still investigating and the other part that I think is interesting is uh, we showed through some of our studies that about 50 percent of people uh, with COVID-19 have cardiac injury we all hear about the lung problem and pneumonia and the cardiac problem uh, might be why this uh, group of drugs which are cardiac drugs might be effective. Dr. Russell, I saw a piece on uh, on one of the American news stations just the other day. Again, this is more research ongoing, and the, the subject at hand was the vaccination of children. And researchers yeah. researchers in the United States have discovered some kind of connection, however loose, and they're working on it. So I'm just asking if you know about this. Uh, for children uh, who contact COVID, uh, there is a greater risk of, of contracting diabetes at a future date. Are you aware of this research? No, no, that's fascinating. That's actually very, very uh, important. Uh, I think we're going to learn more and more uh, in children and adults. Um, Part of our program, we're looking now at what's called long COVID or some of these survivor syndromes. And I think um, we're going to see a lot of 
impact. It's estimated, uh, your viewers might be surprised to hear this, that there's over a million survivors around the world that have this long COVID syndrome mm-hmm. with many symptoms. And I think what will be important to understand is with children, what are the effects of acute infection? Do they have later effects from long COVID? That's not really known. So this uh, study that you talk about is is actually very fascinating. I wasn't aware of that. Okay, well, and of course, it's just new, and they're they're just uh, this is another page in in the book that, of course, the the research will involve. I'm curious though about the long haul. You talked about and and long haul COVID sufferers are typically people with respiratory issues, but you're reminding us that in fact there are serious cardiac uh, ramifications from having COVID, and it can affect you long-term as well. Yes, exactly. So the commonest thing we've found, and I think the literature shows, is that you're right, they get a uh, lung condition uh, anywhere from 25 to 40% of people attending these clinics. We have two of these clinics actually running um, to see survivors of acute COVID-19 at St. Paul's Hospital and Vancouver General Hospital and Dr. Adira Levin and her team are expanding this to other hospitals uh, around the province. Uh, And so we're finding uh, lung problems, heart problems, uh, but we're also finding liver, kidney, and even coagulation problems. Mm. This is through objective testing, not just through symptoms, but pulmonary lung function tests, uh, echocardiograms, and then blood work that shows kidney uh, coagulation and liver dysfunction. And this is three to six months after they were admitted. Uh, And many of the patients weren't even admitted to hospital. So I urge people that are, you know, wondering about vaccines. We know a lot of people are, are still on the fence that we don't really hear enough about the role of vaccines in preventing some of these long COVID problems. It's not just to help you stay out of hospital. It, it may also help you prevent some of these long COVID problems. And it is, uh, I, I suppose, uh, reassuring to a certain extent, Dr. Russell, that your team and others, I'm sure, around the world are working on those long haul. You're observing what's going on and looking at ways to treat uh, long haul conditions. And now you're talking about these uh, receptor blockers, these ARBs that you're studying specifically, uh, which may turn out to be this. This is these are drugs prescribed for people with diabetes and and high blood pressure, but they may turn out to be equally effective against long haul COVID nineteen. Yeah, yeah, that's what we're hoping. We don't know. This is a, an ongoing trial running in Canada and France. Uh, we have a target to get over a thousand patients in the study, but when we're done, we hope we'll answer the question first, do these drugs prevent you from um, getting ICU admission, ventilation, or dying? Mm -hmm. And second, uh, we're going to be seeing a a subset of these patients at three and six months and doing these tests that I just mentioned, uh, the lung, kidney, uh, heart, and uh, liver function tests, and then We'll we'll evaluate, did these drugs have any effect? Did they knock down the frequency or the severity of the long-haul syndrome, the long COVID? And we certainly hope so. And we have, you know, some preliminary data that these drugs work acutely. So there is a rationale that they might actually have a longer-term effect, which would be fantastic if that came and the fact you know came to pass and, and the fact that they're already readily available and inexpensive is just double bonus, isn't it? Yeah, well, that's why we chose uh, this uh, this avenue. We know that many drugs uh, 
that are used uh, if they're brand new drugs are going to be more, more expensive. But as an example, uh, one of the drugs when we price it out, uh, the COZAR, is about 25 cents a day. And so what we hope is if we are successful, this wouldn't just have an impact in wealthier countries, uh, North America, Europe, but also could have an impact in uh, developing countries in Africa and India, et cetera, where uh, less expensive drugs are going to have a much, much wider impact on the condition. Certainly is. Now, Dr. Russell, you've been talking about this study that you're currently engaged in, uh, and the $3.5 million grant from the Canadian Institutes of Health Research is certainly helping that process. What's the timeline, sir? When You said when we finish, we're hoping to be able to publish uh, some findings, etc. What's your deadline? Well, we would hope to get done within the next six to nine months. It's going to take time, but everything's changed with Omicron. Uh, Things may accelerate that. Uh, Although it's less severe, we're seeing uh, more patients with the condition. Mm -hmm. So projecting the timeline is a little bit dynamic right now because this parade of variants uh, of of the virus keeps marching through the world and that's changing uh, not only the condition, but the, the trials that we're running. But I would hope that uh, we would have something to say in six to eight months. And although that sounds like a long time out, uh, some of these trials in other conditions, uh, sepsis, which I've researched my whole career, acute infections, some of those trials run two, three, four years. So six months is actually fairly accelerated. But we're, you know, the team's working hard and we're pushing as hard as we can to we know that getting an answer is, is timely and important and trying to get that done as soon as possible. Absolutely. And Dr. Russell, to say that we uh, not only are applauding your work, but we wish you considerable success would be the understatement of the day. Well, great. No, thank you very much. And I'll pass that along to the team. And I think for, for people listening, if you're already on these drugs, you should continue taking them. And if you get admitted, uh, God forbid, uh, then your doctor may decide to continue giving those drugs while you're in hospital. So I think there's already an immediate uh, message that, that patients that are on these drugs can um, be comforted by. Indeed. Dr. Jim Russell, thanks very much for this. We do appreciate your time and congratulations on the fine work, sir. Super. Thank you very much, Sterling. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen to us live 6 to 9 weekend mornings. I'm Sterling Fox. Have a great week. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.